Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, it was an epic discovery 65 years in the making. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to another ordinary person with an extraordinary find who finally figured out the parents of her grandfather after DNA came to the rescue. And we'll talk to Melissa Barker, the archive lady, about some things you might be able to find in your local archives when things open up again. That's all this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather. Connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Well, it's great to have you, Jeannie. We've got some great guests lined up for today. We've got a woman from Utah who's another ordinary person with an extraordinary find, and we'll be talking to Melissa Barker. Yes, the archive lady is back to talk about some of her recent discoveries. And by the way, if you haven't signed up for our weekly Jeannie newsletter yet, you can do so very easily at ExtremeGenes.com or on our Facebook page. And uh, you get a blog from me each week. You get links to past and present shows, links to stories you'll enjoy as a genealogist so uh, get signed up for it right now it's time to head out to boston massachusetts and the office of the incredible david allen lambert the chief genealogist of the new england historic genealogical society and americanancestors.org how you doing dave i'm doing great i tell you if i get any more lack of sleep it's going to be because i've been playing with ancestry's dna matches and just kind of going through oh. all those ones that don't have a common ancestor or don't don't have a tree. Oh, yeah. Two, three o'clock in the morning. The shared matches are. Oh, yeah. And remember, they cut this down. <laughs> right. This is even as big as we originally had. No, thank, thank goodness. goodness. I probably would be doing this for the rest of the year. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I just got uh, this past week from my brother-in-law a packet of stuff that was in a family Bible. Things he saved, old newspaper clippings, old letters. And one of the letters in there was to my wife's great-grandfather, who was born in 1872, and this guy was a boyhood friend of his, and they talk about being in school together, and he mentions what the school was, which was information we never had. So it's really kind of oh, fun when you excellent. get that stuff. I just look at this as the Family Archives branch, and so we just had a merger. Well, hey, don't forget, if you haven't signed up yet, Roots Tech is free. What are you waiting for? That's going to be great. In fact, they just announced their four keynote speakers that are coming up. So that's some exciting news. And before you know it, it will be here. Yep. And it's going to be a lot of fun for all of us because it's done entirely differently this time around. As we heard from our visit with Steve Rockwood uh, several weeks ago, talking about how this is going to be going on for three days, 24-7, following the sun. So that if you live in the Far East, you're going to hear lectures and you're going to have courses about researching your ancestors there and then moving right around the globe until you get back to North America. It's going to be a fascinating conference done virtually and in some ways it might be better than anything ever done before. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I've got one scratched into the schedule there for everyone to take part in. It's on cemeteries. Nice. Well, 
This one really touched my heart. This is a story about a gentleman that was born 25 years after the Allies defeated Hitler in Germany in World War II. Thomas Edelman had always heard a story that his family business had been previously owned by a Jewish family that were forced to sell to his paternal grandfather, Wilhelm Edelman. So Thomas started to do some research and with the help of MyHeritage.com, got in touch with the granddaughter, 83-year-old Hannah Einreich, who lives in Israel, who knew the story. Isn't that something? And she even had a journal that her grandfather had written that talked about this Nazi who basically bought the store for a song. In it, it said that this man was a very nice man despite the fact he was a Nazi. Well, the the grandson isn't so convinced that that's true, but nonetheless, he just felt that it was important for his son, especially who's a teenage boy right now, to understand the impact choices can make on families for generations by decisions they that's make. very, very true. In fact, her grandfather had fought in World War One for the Germans, as many Jewish World War One veterans would later find out their service didn't mean anything. Yeah. When yeah. World War II came around. Incredible. Well, you know, I always love technology. May it be DNA or some new analysis by dendrochronology, you know, the DNA of wood. But what I really love is when you find stuff like this ground-penetrating radar up in Norway has determined one of the high-status Viking burials that had never been known before. In a place called the Gel Mound, not the Jello Mound, folks, in <laughs> Gjelstad, southeastern Norway, has both a Viking burial ship, a feast hall, a cult house, and the remnants of little outbuildings. This is amazing. You can look from this on ExtremeGenes.com and see the outline clear of this Viking vessel. Isn't that something? There. Isn't that absolutely amazing? GPR, love it. Well, you know, I like to think I know a lot about the Civil War, and of course, at the end of the Civil War, a person named John Wilkes Booth changed history, and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln affected both North and South. But there is a lot of stuff on John Wilkes Booth's family I didn't know, and that's on history.com, which you can find the article linked on extremegenes.com. What did you think of the article? I thought it was great. I thought there was some great stuff there, a fabulous picture of the father, Junius Booth. And oh, yes. uh, what was amazing to me was this little story in here about at the time of the funeral of Edwin Booth, the number one brother in terms of his acclaim for acting, at the time that his funeral was going on, there was a government office that had been set up on three stories at Ford's Theater. They all collapsed and 22 people were killed at the exact moment they were lauding the life of Edwin Booth. Isn't that weird? It really is. You know, the whole Booth family were amazing actors over from England. In fact, John Wilkes Booth's mother was a poor London girl who used to sell flowers outside of the theater where Junius Booth performed. And lo and behold, they fell in love. She got pregnant. They moved to America. And the rest is history. Well, speaking of the Civil War or the War of Northern Aggression, depending on what side of the Mason-Dixon line you may live, the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, I didn't even know that existed. I needed to visit this website because they have tremendous virtual tours and remote learning resources that are great during COVID. Also, this is a tab off of their site, the Clara Barton Missing Soldiers Office. Now, the records aren't there anymore, but it's still there on 7th Street in D.C. Isn't that something? 
Well, folks, that's all I have from Beantown for you this week. All right, David, thank you so much. We'll catch you again at the back end of the show for Ask Us Anything. And I'm excited to be talking to Lisa Murphy. And this kind of fits into the theme that we sometimes do on the show called Ordinary People with Extraordinary Fines. And Lisa, your fine absolutely qualifies as you track down the ancestry of your grandfather who kept his mouth shut his whole life. Did you know him? I knew him as a young child. I think I was about 10 when he died. So I do have some memories, but not a lot. What do you know about him? What did he tell you about himself? Well, really nothing. He told us his name was Harry Mayo. He told us that he was an orphan and that he had come into this country through the port of Montreal, actually. He said that he was on his own from the time he was 13 years old and He remembers as a young orphan in the streets of Montreal stealing milk and bread off of people's front porches before they woke up in the morning to get their daily delivery so that he could eat. Grandmother was also an orphan, so my dad grew up with no aunts, uncles, cousins, or grandparents. Wow. Uh, Did he say where Mm -hmm. he was from originally? He said that he was born in La Havre, France, but we always thought that was strange because He was very Italian and spoke fluent Italian and spoke with an Italian accent. Well, that might be your first clue, right? (laughs) That might be the first clue. That's right. And also it was strange because his last name was Mayo, M-A-Y-O, and there is no Y in the Italian language. And so who had an interest in actually trying to crack his case? Do you mean after people grew up? Because the kids asked him questions about himself when they were little. When they grew up to a point, they would ask their dad questions about himself, and he would get angry. Well, he would start by saying, oh, I don't know, that was a long time ago. And then if they pressed him, he would literally get angry, and he would say, I said, I don't want to talk about that. Wow. So he would he would literally get angry if you asked him any questions about his past. Huh. That is uh, mm-hmm. amazingly strange. So now he's long past. When did he pass away? Uh, 1969. Okay. And so his kids are still around. How many children did he have? He had four. Four. uh, Three boys and a girl. Okay. And now we have this new era here with DNA, and one of you decides, hey, it's time. Let's get a test and see what happens. Was the anticipation of doing this test to find out ethnicity, or was it to find matches, or both? You know, I don't think that we ever really thought about the matches. I think that we had more ethnicity in mind. Of course, my dad and uncle and my uncle Alvin were one of the first to get it done. And, you know, it was really kind of in the new stages of DNA before things really began to explode and we figured out what it was all about, you know, but because their dad was a mystery, they, they wanted to know what they were made of. Sure. You know, yeah, and well, I think so. most people go on now. Ethnicity is kind of what the big companies market. And uh, sure. and then some people find, oh, there are matches here, too. I mean, that happened to a friend of mine who was adopted, and we were actually able to identify her birth mother and birth father as a result. But she had had no anticipation of that when she took the test. She just wanted the ethnicity. Yes. So you found yes. matches. And when did the matches start coming in, and what did you find out? Well, it was interesting. When Dad and Alvin first got the DNA tests, which was over well over five years ago, they came back as like one of the only 3% of people that could not be placed. 
And we were thinking, oh, brother, I mean, this is truly a dead end everywhere we go. And then they said, we could tell you that you probably came from somewhere in the Middle East, probably Israel. So then that gave us another idea about my grandfather, like, okay, was he Jewish? Right, of course. I mean, we had exhausted everything. We had looked through prison records. Is he hiding a crime? You know, and then <laughs> then when the DNA came through, we thought, well, is he Jewish? Was he hiding that he was Jewish? Because lots of times people from the old country and and particularly Jews would hide that ethnicity. Sure. A lot of uh, people hid their ethnicity. Hungarians did. Yes. Irish. Yes. So then that was one thing. And then five years went by and then somebody contacted my Uncle Alvin and her name was not M-E-O. It was another name that, you know, a married name, you know. And so she contacted him and she said, I think we have a match. But they couldn't figure out where they matched because, of course, we had no family tree. Of course. Right. You know, because usually people, you know, when they have a match, they put their trees together and they say, oh, I see. Okay, here's our common ancestor. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we can't get past dad. So we have no family tree. So they talked for about a year, and they couldn't figure it out. And then another family member, totally unbeknownst to the original family member who contacted my uncle, she contacted him and said, we have a match. And she sent him a handmade family group sheet. Okay. Now, my grandfather did tell us that his parents were named Pietro and Katerina. So we knew that. And he he also told my grandmother that he had a brother named Marion who had died of an infection as a child. So we knew that. We had also found a previous wife of his by various means back in the 80s that we ha- we didn't even know he'd been married before. And she told us in a letter that he had told her about a sister named Grace who was living in New York, but he had never mentioned a grace to us. But by, you know, various means, we had collected these four names that he said all these people were dead. Unbelievable. So this woman sends him this, like, typewritten family group sheet, and I don't know, it looks very, very old. Sure. And on it, it had the parents, Pietro and Katerina, and then it had 11 children on there. <laughs> and of the 11, there was one named Grazia, or Grace. Yes. And there was one named Mariano, or Marion. And it said that Marion had died of an infection as a child. Then there were all the children's names and who they married and what children they had. So there was a lot of names on this sheet. But at the very, very end, in the right-hand corner... It named a child Nunziato, and it said he immigrated to America and went to Boston and Toronto and disappeared. And we knew that we had our match. Wow. What a day that had to be for the family. It was 65 years in the making. I mean, my dad is 85 years old. Imagine being 85 and finding out your father's true identity, his true name, seeing his birth certificate. It was just, it was like the whole family has been on fire. Oh, I can only imagine. Now, you've met a lot of matches now. So were you able to link in with the original contact? Do you now know where you're related to them and how this all comes together? 
Oh, it, well, the story just gets more magnificent every day. And there's not a day that goes by that something just mind-blowing happens. You know, some <laughs> new revelation happens. It's just, it's mind-blowing. Like, every day is an adventure. And so what I did was I created a family Facebook page, and I called it the Nunziato Mayo Family. So I just added all of our family members, the MAYOs, on there because everybody started getting online. Because once we had a name and a place, the information was very easy to find. I mean, my brother's getting online and he's finding so-and-so's death certificate and the picture of their gravesite and and their immigration record. And I'm getting online and my sister's getting online. And, you know, there's all these various threads, you know, like running through the family by text and email. And there's different people on different threads. And so it's hard to keep up. And so what I did was I created the Facebook page so that we could have a common dumping ground so that when somebody found something, they could put it on the page and everybody could be there and everybody could see it. And then I thought, you know, I wonder if any of those MEO Mayos are on Facebook. And so I just started searching on Facebook for them. And both my sister and I started messaging people. And at first they were a little bit tentative because like they have this big Italian family and they're like, well, who are you? Yeah. You know, like where do what? you fit in? Well, that's off yeah. in the way, like, isn't it? Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, they're um, Italian Sicilians. And I think that some of the older generation was like, wait a minute, let's check these people yeah. out first. <laughs> Just you a know? little bit suspicious <laughs> there, right? That's, yeah. There were a couple of them that were like, one said, well, you know, um, my dad needs to check you out. You know, <laughs> of course he was, you know, he was our cousin Vinny, literally. <laughs> cousin Vinny, let me tell you. Yeah, okay. That's so right. There were 11 kids in this family. Your grandfather was one of them. How many of the different branches now? The other 10, well, I guess it would be nine because the one died young. Uh, how many yes. of those other branches are you in touch with now? We're in touch with five. Wow. Five of the other mm-hmm. nine. One, well, four in America and one that is still in Italy. That's incredible. Are you going to go over to Italy? Are you going to see the home country? Are you going to see the home city? Oh, my gosh. We have to. Of course, we've Google Earthed it already. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Taking a little tour. Yeah. Okay. Have you planned a reunion with any of these people yet? I want to. I'm in the process of planning one for next summer. And... Oh, I've got big plans. Oh, I've got such big plans. <laughs> well, listen to you. That's so exciting. She's Lisa Murphy. She's from Orem, Utah, and her family has had a huge breakthrough thanks to DNA. And just not only huge in terms of exciting, huge in terms of numbers. That's fantastic. So congratulations. She's an ordinary person with an extraordinary find. You can do the same thing. Lisa, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it was such a pleasure. I never get tired of talking about this. (laughs) I bet you don't. And who does? It was a while back we introduced America to my next guest. She is known as the Archive Lady. She is a professional researcher, still specializes in Tennessee research for many clients, but one day got roped into putting together an archive for her county. It's Houston County, as I recall, in Tennessee. Is that right, Melissa? It sure is. Houston County, Tennessee. Yep. She's Melissa Barker. Nice to have you back. I love having the Southern Bells back on the show. 
thanks, Scott. It's great to be back, especially um, in October, which is American Archives Month. That is correct. And, you know, I remember you were telling me on our last visit that you weren't too excited about what was going to be required in putting together this archive for your county. And you have since fallen in love with it, embraced it. And I think the exciting thing about it is you're around material that isn't necessarily available online, which is the case for most all archives. That's true, Scott. You know, many, many of our archives across the United States and across the world have records sitting on shelves that are just waiting for researchers to discover. And I'm a big advocate for old-time research. I'm not really one who considers all the time you spend going through all the various sites as being genuine research. I mean, obviously it is because you're finding documents that other people have digitized, and that's great. But we become addicted to them and thinking, well, if it isn't there, it's just not to be had. But that is not the case there's probably a lot more material available that's not online than there is online. Melissa, talk about some of the things you found recently, because you never call me unless you found something new and unique and exciting to help give an example to people of what they can find in an archive. Oh, well, since we last talked, we have found some very interesting items in our archives. One of the things that we have gotten recently is some stuff called loony money. Have you ever heard of loony money? Loony money. No, I don't think I have. <laughs> Well, loony money is either in script, like paper money, or it's in coins. Okay. And it is from the local store. The store owner would have paid to their employees this money. But the catch was is that you could only spend the money in the store. In the company store. So this was a nice way around paying. The, and, of course, they were making profit on it as well. So mark the prices up in the company store, right? Correct. And so we have two examples of some loony money in our archives. One was for the H.H. Buco Mercantile, and the other one is for the Daniel Mercantile out of Ellis Mills, Tennessee. And so it's wonderful to find these items because it's something that researchers have never heard of, but yet right. maybe their ancestors used. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that because in researching my great-grandfather's coffee, tea, and spice mill in New York City, I often go through eBay, and I ran across a coin from an Albany-based coffee and spice mill, and it, I wondered why their name was on this thing. It was from the 1860s, and I'm thinking, that must be loony money like you're talking about. It sure could be. All right. What else have you found recently? Well, recently I had a local contractor donate a almost 100-year-old vacuum cleaner. He was cleaning out an old house and found this vacuum cleaner, and it is like one of the Bissels you can buy today. They have no motors. You just push them along the carpet, and it picks up stuff. But it's <laughs> all made of wood. A wooden vacuum cleaner. So it's not electric, because I'm thinking a 100-year-old vacuum cleaner. How could that be? I don't know when the first electric ones came along, but this is a wooden thing? Yes, it is completely wooden, and there's no motor. You just, you just uh, push it along the carpet, and it picks up the dirt. And it is totally wooden, and it was made in 1920. And believe it or not, it still works. Now, what's that doing in an archive? I'm curious. <laughs> well, in our archive here in Houston County, we are the only facility in the county that collects and preserves our local history. And when I started the archives about six, seven years ago, we decided that we wanted to collect anything and everything having to do with Houston County, including artifacts and historical items because we put them on display for people to come to the archives and see. Right. Uh, what a great idea to attract people to come by and, and check it out. What else have they donated to you, by the way? 
Oh, we used to have a railroad that came through here. Our county was big because of the railroad, and so we have lots of railroad memorabilia and some other items that locals just come in and they have it in their hand and they'll say, well, do you want it? Or if not, I'm just going to throw it away. And, of course, I grab it as fast as I can. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm always just horrified. I mean, from negatives and photographs, that's one thing. And you would think that would be more obvious. But some of these trinkets, that sounds great. I wish every archive would do something like that. All right, what else have you found within the archive that kind of raised your eyebrows, (laughs) Melissa? One of my favorite things that I have found here recently was we were working on the voting and election records of the county. And we ran across a City of Erin ballot, which is the main city here in Houston County. And the ballot was for 1952. Nothing really unusual about that until Mm -hmm. I looked on the back. And on the back was a handwritten fudge pie recipe. Ooh. That sounds. I just had brownies <laughs> last night, by the way. They were delicious, and I, that sounds similar. I love that fudge pie, huh? And this was from yep. a, a ballot from 1952 for what kind of election? It was a city, a local city election okay. for the city mayor and the aldermen, things like that. I took the recipe, and I made the pie, and it was really good. Really? Did you serve it up to everybody around the archives? I did. I took it to the courthouse and served it up and told them this was a 1952 recipe. (laughs) That is absolutely amazing. So I'm confused, though. I mean, if you had a ballot, how would it wind up in the archive unless they were, you know, keeping some of these things to keep track for a recount potentially or something like that? And why would somebody write a recipe on the back of it? I have no idea. I can just envision someone, one of the little ladies maybe sitting there, you know, uh, signing people in to vote, and she's talking to the other lady and saying, I had this great fudge pie recipe, and the lady says, well, well, can I have it? And she writes it down. <laughs> and hands it over to her, and somehow it winds up back in your hands. That's incredible. Yep. It's one of the finds that I just love because it shows that people were people just like we are today. Yeah, absolutely true. Well, what a great concept, though, to to gather things from around the area, bring them into the archives, and then lure people in to do some research there and see what they can find like you have. What else have you uncovered lately for us? Um, Well, working on our picture collection right now, and one of the things I'd like to tell your listeners about is looking for those unidentified photographs in archives. Many of our archives have them, and if you know what your ancestors look like, you might find some more photographs of them in those unidentified photographs. Boy, it's funny you mention that. There's a state archive near me, and I actually discovered a photograph of my grandfather and his seventh child from 1921 after his first wife died, and he had to take it back to his mother to take care of while he was looking for a new wife and going back and taking care of his own kids who were out of his state. So, yes, there was that picture there, and that was a complete shock to me. I would imagine that's fairly common for archives all over the country if you know where to look. Exactly. You know, most of our archives have photograph collections, but they don't necessarily advertise that they have parts of their collections that are unidentified. And so when you're researching an archive, make sure and ask about those unidentified photographs. You might be able to identify some for them. I would assume that you would look under things like uh, police photographs, firemen photographs, if they belong to different groups. Absolutely. A lot of times they are archived that way, according to group or according to surname. And so always talk to your archivist uh, wherever you're researching and pick their brains about what they have in their collections. 
And, and I would say also it would be a great thing to do if you have unidentified photographs. Do not throw them away. Take them to your local archives, and maybe someday somebody's going to come across it and say, oh, I know who that is. Scan it and put it online for everybody's benefit. Absolutely, because you may have the only known photograph of someone's ancestor, and if you donate it to an archive and it can get identified, what a wonderful treasure. Well, she's the archive lady. She's Melissa Barker. She's from Houston County, Tennessee. Thanks so much for your time, Melissa, and we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds great, Scott. All right, Mr. Lambert is back, and it is time for Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show and ExtremeGenes.com. David, we got an email here from uh, Terry Whitehall in Lansing, Michigan, and Terry writes, Fisher, I heard you mention your recent research on Revolutionary War pensions. I'm finding info in my ancestors' file confusing and contradictory. Any ideas? Terry. That's a good question. I'm sure, David, I know you've done a lot of research on that, and I have been doing that recently, and I'm finding the same thing. There's a lot of contradiction that goes on, and it really takes a lot of work to sort it out to try to determine what companies your ancestor fought with and when. Exactly. You know, I was just the other day looking at a Civil War pension for a lady who had a pension because her husband had died during the war, and she has all their kids with the birth dates. Well, there are about four different forms where she gives different birth dates on her kids every time. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and that's the mother of the children. So let's flash backwards a bit. So it's the Revolutionary War. Pensions are generally not given out till 1818. Uh, the first soldiers, ones, yeah. Okay? Yeah. yeah. So you figure the war has been over 30 years. The guy is maybe a young fellow, but maybe he's a little older. So, you know, maybe his memory's not going so well. The thing that is the strength fish are the affidavits in there. And a lot of people don't look at these. Well, that has nothing to do with my relative. You got to read every page. So let's use a scenario. You and I were in Lexington and Concord together. We look pretty good for our age, don't we? Yeah. I write that I was there when you got an injury on the battlefield, and I helped you to the field hospital down in Cambridge because of your injury, and I was there. You know, I might remember something about a particular battle or event that maybe you weren't clear on. Now, mm -hmm. this is the sidestep on this. A lot of people don't do this. If you have access to the Revolutionary War pensions, for instance, on Fold 3, you now can look up the pensions of other people. And I use this term called adopt the regiment. And what you want to do in this case is look up the pensions for all the people that had affidavits in your ancestors' file. The idea is if I scratch your back, you may scratch mine. So you may get a letter from your ancestor in somebody else's pension file speaking to an event that maybe your ancestor wasn't injured at, right. but the other person was. So their details and information may be helpful. So the next time you think you've run out of things to do on the Revolutionary War, <laughs> think again. Well, you're absolutely right. And I will tell you, I've been working on a New Jersey ancestor and his wife applied and she was in her late 80s when she began the process. And the process went until she was well into her 90s. And the old guys who were testifying on her behalf, there were only like five of them left. And they told some great stories about being with my Revolutionary War ancestor and where. Now, they all have kind of different ideas about what captains and colonels he served under and in what year. And I'm trying to match them up with what military records I can find. 
But looking at the applications of these gentlemen and reading what they had to say about their service time is absolutely amazing. It's kind of like sitting around with a bunch of, right now, old World War II vets and hearing their stories. And these accounts were often written the way these guys told the story. So it's just like sitting there and listening with this group about what it was like. And they'll describe not only stories about themselves and your ancestors, but they'll talk about what happened in the unit and experiences they had, what kind of equipment they used. I mean, it really goes on and on and on. And uh, I, I just can't recommend enough that you get into those files and you get yourself a subscription to Fold 3. I mean, you're not driving around very much these days, so take the money from your gas money and put it into that. It's fantastic. Definitely worthwhile. Thank you, Terry, for the question. And uh, David, this question is from Heather Lockwood in Danbury, Connecticut. And she says, with the holidays coming, I'm thinking of getting my family a coat of arms. Who would you recommend I do this through? David, you take it. (laughs) (laughs) I'd recommend you don't. Um, Right. So here's the rule of thumb. When I was a kid fish, I went to one of these malls and they had like a little cart where you could go and get your coat of arms on a keychain, on a t-shirt, on some beautiful plaque made overseas, done in porcelain, whatever you wanted. So I walked up and I said, I'd like to see what coat of arms you have for the last name Lambert. Well, they had dozens of options for me. And it began with, well, let's see, where did your family come from? And at that point in time, I didn't know where they came from. I didn't know the Lamberts were from Ireland. So I said, well, they came from Canada. He goes, well, they must have been British. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Sure, okay. And he goes, what are some of the first names in your family? So I started naming like my grandfather, my dad, and my uncle's names. Oh, well, here's a Thomas Lambert who had a coat of arms in the 13th century. That must be a family name that they handed down, (laughs) what, for 700 years? So I'm like, yeah, I think I'll pass on that $59.95 coffee mug that you want to sell me, and thank you very much. I mean, the rule of thumb is... I mean, I'm not to say that there aren't families that do have a coat of arms, but can I explain the nutshell process on this? A coat of arms is not applicable to an entire family name. Right. So, Fish, when you graduated high school, you know, your brother didn't get entitled to your high school diploma. So if you're being awarded a coat of arms, that is not applicable to your brother. It's not a applicable to your dad. It's not applicable to your grandfather and all of his descendants that trickle down and the person now in line in that mall store is descendant from. It doesn't work that way. So unless you are related, and it doesn't matter if it's the surname has changed, you might like a coat of arms for your eighth great grandfather's family because they had one, but it's not applicable just to the name itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, you might as well just go to a yard sale, go through a box of old photos, find one with the last name that matches yours and say, oh, this must be my grandfather. Yeah, it's very similar, isn't it? That's true. Very good point. You know, the, the other thing about this is if you want to create something like that, 
I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's really a matter of artistic license. You can create things that have to do with your family's history, and, and there are instructions online for how to create things like that and how to have them made. But like you say, David, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think that <laughs> there's really much to this, and it's pretty darn rare unless you descend directly from the person who received that. And it continues down that line, right? That's very true. So let the buyer beware. I tell you this much, I did stop one of my cousins from getting a Lambert coat of arms tattoo. They wanted to know which one was applicable to our family. I said, none of the above. I said, but you could pick one if you'd like, and most of your friends probably won't know the difference. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that's very true. I don't really know what the significance of that is because it doesn't really have much to do with anybody living today. So fascinating question, and uh, I, I hope we didn't burst any bubbles there, but that is a uh, really challenging situation. I remember talking about this many years ago, but this keeps coming up, and I know there are a lot of places out there that offer this kind of service. So buyer beware. David, thank you for your your time. Save your receipt and return that to the store if you've already purchased one. There you go. All right, David. Talk (laughs) to you next week. Thanks for joining us. All righty. All right. And that's our show for this week. Thank you for joining us, Genies. And talk to you again next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.